What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's interview is with Dr. James McCleary, a forensic psychologist who is an elder board member of the Inside Circle Foundation, the executive producer of the documentary The Work, and a law school graduate. After several run-ins with the judicial system as a young adult and seeing the struggle that other Black men faced, James decided to dedicate his entire life to helping others heal. Today, James and the Inside Circle Foundation does some really incredible work going into maximum security prisons like Folsom State and San Quentin to work with incarcerated men and help them address their personal trauma and wounds through group circles and trainings. He's one of the most thoughtful facilitators I've ever had the privilege of talking to, and he shares his entire process for creating these these circles that have changed lives and had incredible impact for the prisoners who participate. All right, you're going to love this one. Let's dive in. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, my friend. So uh, we've met many years ago now and been following your work for a long time, and it's it's some of the most inspiring community work that, that I know of. So I'm very excited for our conversation today. Would love if you could just kind of kick off with a little bit of an introduction of who you are and, and your story of how you got to the work that you've done with Inside Circle Foundation and the work you're doing today. Ah, thank you. Um, just to put it in context, I was born in 1948, and so I've lived through a lot of uh, the history and cultural history in the world. And I was born on the south side of Chicago, and at that time, there were two enclaves of African Americans in the city because it was one of the most segregated cities in the United States. And I lived on the south side. Uh, And at the time, up until probably I graduated from grade school, black people lived in an area of 10 blocks by 15 blocks. And it was really, you know, uh, social apartheid. Jim Crow was in full effect until I was 20 years old. And so I really saw how uh, the scarcity in the neighborhood caused conflict within people. There was conflict whenever we left the the neighborhood. And so I got very interested in wanting to diffuse conflict so that people could get along, sort of like Rodney King. Why can't we all get along? But that's been the story of my life. So everything that I've done has been in the pursuit of learning more and participating more actively in getting people to the table to find common ground. And so it's amazing background and definitely explains a lot of the work that you've done today. So how did that kind of lead you to the work that you ended up doing with Inside Circle Foundation? Well, I had, uh, interestingly enough, when I was younger, they used to call me friend of the friendless. And that really what it was, was anytime there was a dispute or uh, some conflict, uh, somehow I was in the middle of it trying to, to find some uh, harmony within what was going on. And, you know, I had my own issues with uh, the judicial system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had three felonies by the time I was 23 years old. Wow. And it just became clear to me increasingly that there was... Uh, 
a systematic approach to incarcerating uh, young uh, black males and now young black females, as well as the uh, Hispanic uh, Latino people. And I, a friend of mine who'd done you know, time for, for murder asked me, we were doing some conflict resolution work and initiatory work together already. And he asked me if I would come into Folsom Prison and provide an initiatory experience with him with some of the convicts who happened to be the shot callers in the system. And so I didn't really think he could get in the system doing that kind of work because it's pretty intense work, the initiation process. But he got permission and we did. We first started in Old Folsom with the first training because that is a uh, medium security prison. And the warden uh, said, if you don't mess up here, we'll let you in a maximum. And we immediately went into the maximum security prison a few months later with the second training. And that's where we've done trainings. And I do some work in, in San Quentin. And also, because I'm a speaker on the judicial criminal justice criminal system circuit, I've gotten invited into bringing this kind of circle work into the juvenile system. And so we've been in the New Jersey prisons, juvenile prisons, for about a year and a half with programs. We'd go in every month and do circles. And once COVID hit, we started doing them online. And we were given permission to go ahead to go into the Chicago juvenile prison system, the Illinois system, and COVID hit. So we'll start that as soon as COVID releases. And we've been in some of the juvenile systems in California. Wow. And just to clarify for folks who aren't familiar with Inside Circle Foundation and, and what it means to build a circle, what, what does that mean? So you were asked to come in to the prison to work with the inmates there. What did that work constitute? Well, I, I got my understanding of circle work uh, about 30 years ago when I was invited to an initiatory men's weekend put on by the Mankind Project. And that system was based on the hero's journey, the rites of passage. And it was, I thought, brilliantly put together with processes that allowed a person to take off their armor and descend into a place of vulnerability and transparency so that they could actually, honestly, with the help of a circle of men, take a look at what was working in their life and what wasn't working. And so I learned as much as, as I could. I'm a forensic clinical psychologist, so I added that to the mix. I've done a lot of uh, traveling in my time. Uh, in South America and in South Africa and on the reservations and the shaman elders in all of those places allowed me to study with them. And so I just kind of combined all the, the principles from these different disciplines to add to providing a safe, trusting, and firm place for 
issues, trauma, wounds to be worked out because, you know, what I've learned from my own experience is that the trauma from wounding um, gets repressed and it also gets inflated. And so unconsciously people are trying to reconcile the pain they're feeling mm-hmm. and they do so in, with behavior and attitudes that hurt other people and hurt themselves. And so until I see that I can recognize my own seminal wound and where it came from and how it's controlling me and how other people can do that, then I'll never stop behaving in a way that's dysfunctional and vice versa. And so that's the kind of work we do in the circle, looking at those seminal wounds. That's incredible. And I'm very excited to dive into what an actual circle looks like and how you facilitate them. What was your own experience going through the judicial system? Did you have a program like this for yourself to be able to do that kind of work? No, I wasn't a merchant, not a gangster, but my uh, trade was with... What does that mean? <laughs> gangsters. <laughs> I, I procured and sold just about anything that uh, you might want. Drugs, guns, or whatever you might need, I procured and then sold. And so, you know, I, I had a, a charge for uh, one felony for keeper of a house because part of the the, the world and the business had to do with people, large people coming and going in my home and where I lived. And there was gambling and trade and it got raided. And so I was charged with keeper of a house. I was charged with possession, uh, intent to sell and grand theft. So you know, at different times, those are, were different charges I went to trial twice, and because I was a merchant, I had money, and I could pay for uh, bail and pay for good representation, so those charges were dismissed. So I didn't spend more than you know a few days at every arrest inside, but there was no, no healing that came from that. <laughs> mm. The healing for me came when I went through this training 30 years ago, this initiatory training. Because I had no idea, basically. What's the initiatory training? Was that the Mankind Project? That was the Mankind Project. And then the African-American men that I met who were coming through, and it wasn't very many. It was generally an all-white, no-class program. Um, We decided that it didn't really fit the way we were enculturated into society and so we developed something called the inward journey or the underground railroad and it was really for african americans to take a look at their traumas and how they self-perpetrate or perpetrate in the world dysfunctionally and then the i got pulled because i'm i'm in this world of, of healing i got pulled into a lot of different things right Worked to start a program in Chicago with a couple of other men called the Omega Project. And I actually went to the commissioner of education and presented the program. And he, he gave us 10 high schools to work at. So we had a class. We were had a class every day in those, those 10 high schools teaching uh, self-awareness and right living skills. 
Mm-hmm. And then a friend of mine who had gone through the Mankind Project and had seen me on trainings, he asked me, would I be, if, if I could, would I help him develop and come into prison and do this program? Because he had been asked by one of the uh, convicts to bring such a program in because he was teaching an art class. And the convict got interested in the ex-convict. Uh, his name is Rob, Rob Alby. And because he talked a lot about in poetry how you reveal yourself. And he saw a lot of uh, a willingness for men to become transparent and look at their life through poetry writing. And so this convict said, listen, can you bring this rites of passage into the prison? And so he's a pretty insane guy, Rob Albee, the ex-convict, and he doesn't believe that there are any boundaries in life, like myself, or limitations. Mm -hmm. And so we did. And it's been running for about 25 years. It's incredible. So I'd love to dive into what that program actually looks like. So you come into prisons to do this work with inmates who are in maximum security prisons often, but I think all all, prison, all levels of incarceration at this point. What does that program look like? What, what does it mean to participate in this program? Well, it's a voluntary volunteer program. So the people that we've, we've become attracted to are the shot callers, and shot callers are, are the leaders, the CEOs of, of the different gang organizations. And they become intrigued with the notion of understanding self because a very successful criminal, gangster, if you will, just like a very successful CEO of a Fortune 500 company, they understand uh, people skills and what it means to relate, inspire, motivate, and organize people. That's what these guys do. And so they initially become attracted to the notion of learning more from that aspect. But they also are intrigued by the fact that the people that they see in Inside Circle, like myself and Rob and Bharataji and and now some of the released convicts uh, who are former shot callers, they see that you know, they're men of substance who understand the life. So, you know, we're not missionaries coming in. Mm-hmm. And they become attracted to the brilliance of living in a, a state of transparency and accountability. Mm. And so uh, that's how it started. That, and then they recruit people that they know, that they believe would want to engage in the work and who's ever in the circle it has to be unanimous to let that person in and that person has to uh really say who they are and what they want hmm. in an honest way and it really doesn't matter what they say as long as it's honest and congruent do you ever find yourself trying to convince people to participate in a circle or is it pretty much all really up to the the participants to come to that point themselves and choose to participate? The participant has to choose it for themselves. 
anytime I find myself trying to convince someone of something, I've forgotten what they want and I'm pushing what I want. Mm. And that just doesn't, doesn't work. People have to want what they want and know what they want. They can't want something that I'm convincing them that they want. <laughs> right. And essentially we, we talk about it in uh, language is as medicine is your gift, the shadow, which Carl Jung, the uh, psychiatrist, de- described as those things we hide, repress, and deny because to think about them causes too much pain and internal angst. Right. And so the shadow is that part of us that uh, got terribly wounded at some point in our life. And we find sophisticated ways as we get older and older to cover that up with strategies and techniques that keep us from feeling the angst and the pain, right? Mm -hmm. And so really, you know, my wounding, uh, some of my wounding came from being called stupid and by everybody. And so I had this voracious need to prove that I wasn't stupid. And so I tried to learn everything I could learn. And, you know, I graduated from law school. I've got a doctorate in in clinical psychology. And it was difficult for me to get those things because I didn't really have a proper foundation uh, in education from the school system that I was available to me because at that time uh, I went to a Catholic grade school in high school and again I was born in 1848 so the nuns and the priests and the Christian brothers they considered themselves missionaries you know bringing enlightenment to the natives (laughs) so they weren't really interested (laughs) in what we learned or the quality of what we learned they just wanted to teach us kind of the basics Mm -hmm. At any rate, I, I, I've always wanted to learn as much as I could learn in the service of proving to myself that I wasn't stupid. And in the process, I dropped that. But that drive served me to collect a lot of useless information that sometimes people find useful. <laughs> right. Now, the program has a reputation, and as you said, you know, members will come and recommend other members, or they'll see someone who went through the program and the success they've had. I'm curious for those first few circles that you did for these men who, you know, I think in, in our past conversations, you've said how, you know, they, they, they have that armor for a reason. It keeps them safe. It keeps them protected. What made them trust this and feel drawn to it when they didn't necessarily see proof of it working yet or see an outcome that they were drawn to? What what made them come to that first circle? Well, the convict who had spent time in the hole and after a riot in 1996, there was, you know, a lot of people got wounded and killed. He had three books in the cell and there's in, in the hole and there's nothing in, in, in the, your cell when you stay in there. Uh, all day long, right? 20, 23 hours a day and with no contact with anyone. And so he had Martin Luther King's autobiography. He had Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And he had... That one's my favorite book, Man's Search for Meaning. And Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography. And he just, mm-hmm. you know, absorbed those things. You know, when there's no stimulus, 
there's a lot of focus and attention. Mm -hmm. And when he came out, he talked to Rob and wanted to bring that initiatory process in. I uh, talked to the chaplain so that there could be a safe place if he could get, you know, other shot callers to come in, which is the chapel. There's only two neutral zones in prison, and that's the visiting room and the chapel. Mm-hmm. And from that, he just kept walking the, the uh, yard and pulling over all the, the kingpins and saying, look, we come and sit in a circle. Uh, will you come to the chapel? Mm. And he eventually gathered a group of, of uh, shot callers. And, you know, the idea was just to check in. Who are you? Mm. What's going on? What, what, you know, the, the check-in is generally the, your state of being. How are you feeling? What's bothering you? What do you want? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Some men just checked in with, with uh, you know, their name. Uh, I'm crazy sex, snake, and I'm in. And they would sit there and listen, and I'm crazy snake, and I'm out, right? And some and people began to share. And as they began to share, there is this bonding and cathartic release. So even if you're not doing your own work, uh, you are watching someone do their work and identifying with their pain and with their release. And so it's a development of empathy along the way. And that empathy grows into a sort of a nurturing wisdom uh, that people care for each other in the circle. And it just kept developing. Wow. And after my sons used to, would come into these trainings with me. And so the men in blue got to know them very well. And they knew one of my sons was in the film business, and they said, hey, you should film this. <laughs> and he, my son and I had a, a long conversation, a three-day marathon conversation about it, because he was actually deciding whether he should move uh, to New York and deepen his film experience or to L.A. And he decided that he would take on the, on the challenge. And so my other two sons supported him. And we shot a film called The Work. And that film is sort of the calling card, basically, for what true rehabilitation uh, and restorative justice can look like. It may be my own like perception of prison environments based on what's shown in like Hollywood, but... You know, is it is it not an issue for these leaders of different groups? Are, are they not actually like at odds with each other? Like, are they they're sitting in a circle with people who they would consider their enemy? Absolutely. I remember a time when many of them had gotten released, and essentially from sitting in the circle over the years, and you know, everybody goes uh, goes to a parole hearing every few years and like clockwork <laughs> and the parole board uh, would observe these, these guys over years and they could see true change. And so mm-hmm. most of the men that have been in the circle were not supposed to get out, get out. They were what you call lifers. They had 
you know, hundreds of years of sentencing and, you know, life without parole. And so, or you have to serve this many years before you're considered for parole. And they're out. And we were doing a training with uh, Byron Katie organization. I don't know if you know her, but she's kind of a self-help guru internationally. And her, a lot of her staff came to the training as well as other people. And so there was about 12 of us there. And these guys were sitting around the table and we were having a laugh around remembering who had hits out on who. And describing, you know, what that looked like. Wow. And, and so, yes, there was a great deal of tension that occurred. But, you know, the, the violence on the yard in Folsom Prison is one of the most violent prisons in the United States. The large-scale violence reduced significantly. And so that was because these guys could talk stuff out and sort through things without having uh, a prison riot. And yes, there were still killings and beatings and things like that, but they weren't on the scale that, that they used to be. It's amazing. So what does the experience actually look like for someone to join a circle? So what does that kind of first, you know, onboarding initiation experience look like? And then what is the format of, of the circle on an ongoing basis? Well, the the circles meet uh, once or twice a week, right? And, you know, before COVID at one point, we were meeting Sunday, Wednesday, and uh, Friday, I think. And so men would come into the chapel, I myself and Rob Albee, because Rob, Rob Albee went through an initiation process in Africa, and I went through an indigenous initiation process in South America and Africa. And so we brought some of the things that we had learned over the years to the circle. And so essentially, you know, we we light a candle, put it in the center of the circle, we sit in a chair, and we do a check-in. And that is so people can kind of debrief their state of affairs. So, you know, if you've had a bad phone call with, uh, you know, your wife or, you know, you're not feeling well, uh, when you check in with how you're feeling physically, these are the things you say, I, I've got a headache, so I didn't sleep well last night. Mm-hmm. And I'm pissed off because my son got arrested. And, you know, so it really lets the other person know that if you're in a certain mood, they know why the mood is there and they don't get offended by how how you, the tone of your voice or the curtness or whatever. Mm-hmm. And after the check-in, somebody does a poem, right? And then what we do is we, it's like, okay, uh, we go around the circle and people put a, a number one to 10 on the, the intensity of the work they may have to do. And if the highest intensity does their work first, right? We're typically in there about two and a half hours uh, to three hours. And so, you know, two or three men get to stand in the middle of the carpet and go through the process of the hero's journey, Mm. which is in a few stages, right? 
the call is is when you acknowledge that there's something going on, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't have to know what it is. You just know that there's something not not right with you. And then the dissent is the facilitators ask questions to help a person move closer in clarity to what's going on. Once that person nails what it is, then they may have to make a choice. Well, do, do you want to stay in this place or do you want to move forward and how do you want to move forward, right? And that is when a lot of tension builds up hmm. because there's a lot of strategy not to feel the intensity of the real pain of it. So we guide that person to that place and they feel that intensity, recognize that they can reframe uh, rescript and then reorient, reintegrate the experience into something that, that's workable. And then we welcome them back. Welcome them back to? To a place of, so once that work is done, they, we, we have what's called the, the chief's chair, the king's chair, and you get to sit in the king's chair and just, you know, people may give you a hug or they pat you uh, on the shoulder or something as a way of honoring that you've gone through a quest and an ordeal. And then mm. you can sit there quietly and absorb that. Uh, because after the fighting with the, the tiger, if you will, which is called the ordeal, then you have to decide how you want to put those pieces back together so that they work for you in your life, right? Mm -hmm. And so if if anger is something that leads you to stabbing someone, right, how do you want to use your anger in a proactive way instead of a destructive way, right? And, uh, you know, a lot of people have aspirations. Maybe they want to be a writer or maybe they, they want to learn uh, a skill or maybe they want to get a degree. And so that energy now is rechanneled into pursuing those things. How big are the circles generally? Well, the circles are, you know, anywhere from 12 to 20 men, the weekly circles. Uh -huh. And then every three months uh, or so, we have what we call a four-day intensive. And that is when there's there can be up to, you know, 40, 50 convicts in the room and 30 men from the street. And that is a ritualized process, right? And there are men that have been uh, convicts who have been to the training uh, to the circles who haven't had an intensive training mm -hmm. and they're called initiatives. And so they go through a whole, that whole training as an initiative. And, you know, as the first couple of trainings we had like that, everybody was going through the process, right? Mm -hmm. But now after you've gone through the process, you become a supporter and you also get a chance when you're sitting in the circle to do work if it comes up. But really, you're learning that at that point, you're learning how to facilitate mm -hmm. men going through the process. Mm -hmm. 
So it lasts four days and the training lasts four days. Is the training is that where they're going through that hero's journey and, and doing that work? Well they do we do the work in a circle, but it's abbreviated. Okay. And when we do the work during the four day session, there's a lot of uh processes that we do and so you know when you a circle during the week men just come in quietly and set up the circle physically and put the you know the uh, candle in the middle in the chairs and then sit down and get to it at a training the staff people uh, from outside and inside are there uh, and the initiates are put in a, in a room, a separate room. And then, you know, we have them come out of the room and, you know, generally it's me. Sometimes it's one of our Hawaiian brothers who has learned a lot of indigenous uh, shamanistic work. Either I may sing a song and present the challenge, right? And then they sit down and then everyone who has never been to a training has to stand in the center of the circle and declare why they're there. Mm. And if it's not honest, then, you know, in the beginning they had to leave. (laughs) Right. How do you know if it's not honest? Well, you just know, right. Mm. When a person is honest, that means they're congruent and that, uh, means that what they're saying, what they're feeling emotionally and physically is all the same. So you're not saying you, you, you agree with something and your body language, your head is shaking no. <laughs> you know, like, hey, are you going to pick me up at 7 o'clock? And you say, yeah, I'll be there, but your head is shaking no. Yeah. It just suggests there's no commitment there. It's not aligned. So is that your job as the facilitator to notice when they're not being honest and and you call that out no actually the 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 men who do that are the convicts the men in blue Mm. so you know all the men from the outside we don't have that job we we just sit and support the total circle interesting and the men from the inside determine if the guy's uh congruent or not and when you say people from the outside you bring in participants not necessarily people who have been convicted of crimes or spent time in prison, right? Is that right? The men from the outside generally came from the Mankind Project uh, organization. Got it. So these are men that myself and Rob and other Inside Circle guys, uh, regulars, we all knew each other from the Mankind Project because we were all doing this kind of work. Yeah. And so generally staff is from that pool of people. Right. Um, not always, but in general. Got it. And in the beginning, those we only had the most proficient people come in, right? And then it uh, got to the point where you didn't have to really be a great facilitator as long as you were a straight-up guy, which means you could hold your mud in prison. You weren't coming in there to, to as a voyeur. You were going to be honest. And so you had this, that your own medicine that was valuable to share. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you had never been in there before, even the outside guy had to stand in the circle of convicts and declare why they're there. Mm. 
Interesting. And so all the all the men from the outside actually knew what the work looked like up until maybe four years ago. Then we started bringing in all kinds of of people that we felt were influential enough to understand what was going on and support the movement, basically. Mm. So they come in to support the prisoners who are participating in the program? They come in as initiates. <laughs> oh, so they come in to participate as well? Exactly. Mm. And they have to do their work. And uh, probably 99% of them have never done their work. Right. Who are you bringing in? Who Who's like the type of person that you're bringing in today? Can anyone come in? Anyone can come in. And, you know, when we open up again, we'll start to bring women in. But these are, uh, they might be uh, philanthropists or CEOs or someone, uh, an attorney that ha- that's in the judicial system that has a lot of influence that may be able to call a meeting uh, with influential people so that, you know, myself or Rob, generally it's me because I have all these credentials and, you know, one of the founders of the work. And I sit down and propose a process that could be useful in their system. And, you know, philanthropists, because it's a not-for-profit, so we need money. Right. <laughs> could be someone in the media who has the capability of uh, spreading the work that we're doing, the impact of the work and the significance of it. It just really depends. Or it could just be a a personal friend who you know this could add uh, to their life. Yeah, really cool. So, okay, so they introduce themselves in the middle of the circle and state their purpose for being there. They have to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, what what happens next as they go through that process? Well, I don't want to give away the goodies, but <laughs> the secrets. Yeah, but essentially, what happens is you get connected up with a guide, with two guides from inside uh, the prison, convicts, and circles are formed. So you know, with seventy men in the circles, we generally have to have like five or six circles going. So you have about ten people in each circle. Yeah. 10, 12, something okay. like that. And then right. we there's a, a, a descent process that is, is really what the four stages, the quick four stages of a hero's journey is someone hears, hears the call, so they show up somewhere. There is the descent, and that's the stripping of the armor that keeps you from being transparent, vulnerable, and honest. Then there's the ordeal where you actually confront what your issue is. And then there's the ascent, and that's where you determine, well, what's the new vision purpose for yourself in this thing or in life? Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a celebration, which is the coming home. Mm-hmm. So that's the model method, the, the hero's journey. And then we introduce processes that help each of those phases progress. You know, just for instance, we have a betrayal process uh, as part of the taking off the armor. Who has betrayed you and who have you betrayed? Mm. Which is very revealing. Mm. Because it it essentially says, how have I compromised myself, my soul self, 
And how have I compromised the soul self of someone else? And so you get to see your strategies for how you are dysfunctional. And you can make a choice whether you want to change those strategies that aren't dysfunctional versus functional. Because medicine and shadow are two sides of the same coin. Mm. A great motivational speaker can also be somebody like, you know, a cult leader. Mm. You can use your oratory uh, medicine to calm people and right. control people right. instead of inspire or motivate. Right. Yeah, I kind of I remember someone telling me that like every personal trait has an attic and a basement. There you go. Right. So there's a positive version of it in a way and a negative uh, version of it, a positive kind of impact that it can have and a negative impact that it can have on you and on others. And it's the same trait. It's just how you apply it in the world. Mm -hmm. That's it. I'm curious for your advice for people who are facilitating group discussions that they want to be open and vulnerable. What are the keys for you to facilitate a group like that? And what do you do when someone uh, is bringing negativity into the group or, you know, not aligning with the, the rules and the guidelines that you have in the group? How do you bring it back? Well, I, you know, very simply, a facilitator should do their own work. Do it frequently. You know, for me, uh, I sit in, I, I'm in circle. So, I can't see a lot of stuff. I can't see my shadow <laughs> quite often. And so sitting in a circle helps, gives me the benefit of other people guiding me towards that because they can see it. Mm. That's number one, do your work. If, you don't, if you're not in a circle, another practice I do is I do the pies. What's going on with me physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually? Mm-hmm. And if I can identify those honestly to myself, it, it sort of gives me, you know, where I'm at in that moment and then gives me the choice to autocorrect or not. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would say for the facilitator and then learn as much as you can learn about human inter- interaction and the human behavior. And, you know, disruption is, is for me, a facilitator uh, should really... I believe, I look at, at disruption as resistance. So that's really telling me something about what people are trying to hide, repress or deny. And so I am grateful and wanting resistance. Because if they, if an individual and, and myself, if I can't voice something, I have to have some help in discovering my voice around it. And when I'm resisting, the elements and particular strategy of my resistance is, is telling the facilitator what my issue is and how I'm trying to avoid looking at the issue. Mm. So empathy, obviously, being clean because you've done your own work, mm. following the person instead of the leading the person. You know, I might really know where somebody's going. But I don't want to be fooled by my own arrogance. Mm. And so humility is following the person, regardless of how it's hitting you, instead of leading the person. Mm. What does that mean in practice of someone in the circle is is disrupting or 
I don't know, being really negative toward another member or something like that? What does that mean to follow instead of lead in order to bring things back to to center or into a more productive space? Well, if if some somebody in the circle is then generally those kind of disruptions don't show up like you just described. Okay. <laughs> right? But if they do and somebody is yelling at a, a person or gets angry with a person, then you know there's a process for that. And it's called a clearing. And so it's okay, what's the data? Well, what's the factual information surrounding you being angry? Mm. Well, this person uh, didn't didn't call me, and they said they were going to call me at, at seven, and I had to wait out in the rain. Okay, that's the data, right? Ninety five percent of most conflict is because there's inaccurate and misunderstanding of the data. Mm-hmm. You, you can't be accountable to something you haven't agreed to. Right. So either implied or explicit. And so once a date is out there, then it is. So how do you feel? Well, I'm angry because they left me in the rain. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what are your judgments about that? Well, I judge the person didn't care, doesn't care about me. Mm -hmm. Right. They're selfish. And then it's what do you want? Well, I want this person to tell me why they didn't pick me up. And I don't want them to agree to, to say they're going to pick me up if they're not. Right now, the other person uh, has a chance to respond to the to what they've heard, and it could be that the person's grandmother died, and they had to take them to, uh, or got sick, and they had to take them to the hospital. Mm. And at that point, if that person knew that, there would be no anger and you know judgments that got formed. Makes sense once they have the information. Yeah. And and the information's great, or it gives the other person the the chance to become accountable to breaking their agreement. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the person offers what's called a makeup. And it, it really is just something that they say they're gonna do that they do. And when they do it, they can get back into integrity with the other person and themselves. Mm. And it could be as simple as, well, I'll bring you lunch this afternoon. Yeah. And then they have to follow through on it. Yeah. I love it. Last question, and then we'll dive into our rapid-fire question round, everyone's favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> Before we do that, what are like some common misconceptions that people have about people who are incarcerated that you've learned through all these experiences that you've had that you would want to correct or debunk? The biggest one for me is that this person is just this way and they can't change. Mm. And I remember, uh, because, you know, I was a forensic psychologist. I worked with intakes, outtakes, behavior programs for incarcerated people. And some people would get labeled as psychopaths and they weren't actually psychopaths. (laughs) It was just a learned behavior that had started very early. Mm. And once they saw that there was other behavior that they could practice and learn, and they were no longer sociopathic, right? And and the other thing is that they can't be trusted, which is not true. I remember there was a person who had from the outside who we had brought in, and I'm not going to mention their name, 
but they are in the top 10 wealthiest people in the world, you know, a descendant. Mm-hmm. And after going through the training, he went to his resort and he called one of the guys on the staff and said, I feel happier. I felt happier and more connected there than I do here around all these people I know. Mm-hmm. And other people have said things like, you know, church, being in church doesn't give me this feeling. So, you know, there's a misconception that that kind of serenity, honesty, beauty, connection, divinity can be present in a hellhole, which it is. Mm. It, it's frankly a nightmare in a maximum security prison. You know, they, these, these shop callers, they have to, they are on hyper alert 24 mm. 7. They don't go to bed until they've reviewed the whole day. Mm-hmm how somebody sounded, what they looked like, what was going on in this part of the yard, that kind of thing. Well, I'm going to take back what I said, and I actually have one more question for you (laughs) that I just remembered. Based on the conversation we had a few days ago, since we had that conversation, a lot of things has happened in this country. So, you know, this, this recording will go up a little bit later, but, you know, we're having this conversation the day after there was just the uh, the violence at the Capitol in Washington. We have, you know, more divisiveness in the country than we've seen in my generation to this point. I'm curious what your take is on how we can start to heal and bridge those kinds of divisions across, you know, different groups in the country today. Yeah. That's a great question. So I've I've long had my opinion that this particular culture has had some great perpetrated trauma that has not been acknowledged. There is genocide, there is systematic racism, there is an elaborate system, caste system, and this is trauma and wounding that has never been addressed and it's beginning to get addressed, right? We had the Civil War, we had the Civil Rights Movement, uh, we had the Suffrage Movement, and just in the last couple of years, there's been the Me Too, there's been this resurgence of systematic racism, and now there is this toxic tribalism that's occurring between uh, people in the United States, Democrats, Republicans, and, you know, and so there's a polarization that has developed because every no one is sitting at the table with each other, trying to understand how we all got there, and basically that's what the work is. There is no demonization to someone who comes into the circle to do their work. Mm. Right. There is an acknowledgement that you there there was a bad (laughs) and that first has to be acknowledged. Right. And then the nature of how one how one took on that sense of, you know, inherited bad or I've done this to other people. Uh, Once that has been owned and acknowledged and then a choice about whether you want to continue to do that. 
then there's the opportunity to move on. And there is just no way, because I've seen it happen, there's just no way that, I mean, I, when I did my first circle work, I was one of the, the, the other initiates participants had been grown, grown up in a survival group in Colorado. And from early childhood till his adulthood, he witnessed, you know, lynchings and, and things like that. And his concept of who I was, he had, was using his own information and dogma and ideology to, to, to understand who I was mm-hmm. until he actually met me. <laughs> And after he met me, I mean, he just wept. We both wept. I was weeping because I could see and feel his pain as, as to what he had done. And he was weeping for his own self and for me. And there's just no way we could walk away and not have some more empathy and be able to talk about things to a greater extent than before we had actually sat down. So I think if, if if we had some format for that, mm. you wouldn't have that divide. Yeah. Yeah. And from what you were sharing earlier, you know, it has to be the choice of the participants to come and participate. You can't make them, you can't force them to come to the table. So That's I think right. the table needs to exist in the first place, and then people need to make the choice to sit down at it. And I have to tell you, what I found is that the people who – are the strongest in any group. They are the ones that that seem to understand, that that seem to relate to another strong person. And once they can relate to the fact that, well, this is a strong person, I'm a strong person, and they don't think about it like that, right? But you can just feel when somebody has got grit and you respect that grit, You'll sit down with that person. Mm -hmm. And it's a trickle-down effect. So that's why we always went after, not went after, but that's why we started with the shot callers. Right. Because if you could get get them in the room, they have enough influence to bring everybody else in the room. Mm -hmm. I mean, even with Trump, when he said go home. (laughs) I was just going to say, how do we get Donald Trump in the room? A lot of people listened to him and went home. <laughs> what can I tell you? <laughs> so that would be the thing, to, to have a format. And that's actually our next film project. Oh, yeah? You have a new film project coming out? Yeah. Create a venue for that to happen. Awesome. Well, very excited for that. All right, let's dive into the rapid fire before I come up with more long-form questions that keep us going. First question, what's your favorite book to recommend or give as a gift to others? I've got a lot of favorite books, but I like The Science of Man. Why? The Science of Mind. Science of Mind. Yes. Well, I can't, I'm blanking on it. His first name is Ernest. I'm blanking on his last name. But essentially, he was a Christian, and I'm not a Christian. All right? I believe Jesus Christ was a, a very powerful shaman. Hmm. But at any rate, he took the tenets of, of Christianity. Mm-hmm and wrote them in a very practical way, which I thought was quite powerful. Awesome. Science of mind. Love it. Okay, next question. Who's an up-and-coming community builder or creator that you recommend we all follow? Um, I 
uh, one of the the executive director of Inside Turkle Foundation. Uh, his name is Eldra Jackson the Third. He is a very. He spent, I think it was 25, 29 years in in prison, and he's out. And he is uh, very brilliant and has great insight and, and born leader and Ashanti Branch. That's a great one. I had the privilege of participating in one of Ashanti Branch's workshops, Taking Off the Mask. It was one of the most meaningful experiences I've ever had. Next question. What's your favorite question to ask to spark interesting conversations or contributions when you're facilitating a, a group discussion? Why are you here? Hmm. Why is that the question you like? Because it starts to uncover all kinds of uh, hidden motivations. Hmm. And I think, you know, that is the first step, dis- discovering that they're hidden motivations into doing your work, being conscious about doing your work and being aware. Love it. All right, next question. What's your all-time favorite album to listen to? Uh, I like Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. Love it. Classic. Next question. If you could get the members of your community to believe one thing about themselves, what would that be? That there is a medicine in you that's brilliant. It has a capacity to heal lots of people. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Well, I wasn't a part of this community, but I went to an introductory uh, meeting of EST. Okay, what's that? It was a early self-help uh, group that uh, felt that believed that you were your own worst enemy because of the dialogue that was going on in your head. Yeah, it sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> it was the implementation, their techniques that I, I thought were weird. Okay. All right, we'll have to look it up. Est. Okay. And last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world for how to live, what would that advice be? Uh, just do the pies and take some this kind of inventory on yourself to understand what you're thinking, feeling, believing, and what you want. And if you can answer those four questions in the past, then you're congruent. And when you're right with the world, you know where you fit in. Mm, Love it. Definitely relevant today in today's society. It's hard to find a pause, hard to find stillness. And that's something I'm learning a little bit about every day and trying to bring into my life. So I appreciate that advice. Awesome. Well, James, this is amazing. Is there anywhere that people should go to continue to follow you and continue to follow the work that you're doing? Well, they can go to, to Inside Circle webpage and they won't be following me but they'll be following the work you know that i I spawn and spawned and have contributed to but i don't have a podcast or a web or anything like that we gotta get you a podcast yeah i'm used to get you a tiktok you like tiktok yet I don't even know what that is. <laughs> All right, well, we'll take that offline. We're going to get you set up with TikTok because <laughs> I think you would you would crush it on there. <laughs> I would follow okay. you immediately. <laughs> There's a lot okay. of really good mental health stuff on there, actually. So I would ask everybody to take a look at the documentary, the work. Yes, 
Absolutely. Highly recommend watching. And, and then if they want to get in touch with me, then we got something to talk about. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good. Well, James, this was amazing. Thanks again for taking the time. And I mean, every conversation I have with you, I leave just more mindful and more inspired. And the work you're doing is is some of the most impactful work in the world. And And I think it is setting an example for all of us that, you know, the, the things that you're practicing within within a maximum security prison is is absolutely something that can be applied anywhere in the world and help people work through their own traumas and find connection and commonality where there's division. So uh, it's, I'm really inspired by all the work that you've done and just really grateful for you taking the time to share your story today. Thank you, my friend. Awesome. Talk with you soon. Indeed. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.